Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Welcome to this episode of Christians in the Public Square um, with Cole Bennett, Scott Self. And today we're very happy to have with us Logan Owens as a guest speaker. Welcome, Logan. Glad to be here. Logan is a graduate of Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. Logan himself is from Houston. He has a Bachelor of Arts in English and in Biblical Texts uh, from ACU. So we're really glad he's here to talk with us about an interesting topic uh, to discuss on the political front. Our topic today is reparations, and the reason we got here is because Logan and I have, having had many very interesting discussions in our friendship together, got uh, began talking about the article that appeared in The Atlantic in 2014. Uh, I believe it's just called The Case for Reparations, right? Mm-hmm. right. And so um, I've asked Logan to just I think a lot of our listeners know about the article. Many of many will have read it. So let me just ask Logan to talk about the article a little bit and tell us what you found persuasive. Well, let's do this first. Okay. Let's rehearse our three tenets. Okay. What are our three tenets, Scott? Well, um, the first is sacred cows make great barbecue. Correct. We'll argue about anything, and uh, we're not afraid of orthodoxy. Uh, number two... <laughs> Is let your flag fly proudly. Uh, we'll argue as vig- we'll argue as vigorously as we uh, as we like. And then third is bros before politicos. That's right. So that's right. And we're eager to hear about Logan's flag that he'll be flying. Yes, later on. Very much. So, Logan, tell us about the article and what you found interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of Tony Easy Coates. I'm the author of this article. I actually just finished presenting a paper on his memoir, Between the World and Me, uh, at a conference about a few weekends ago. Um, But this article they wrote for The Atlantic has kind of become this kind of flagship rallying or kind of distancing call for a lot of people um, because in it, basically, Coates is arguing that based on the 250 years of slavery uh, that African-Americans experienced in the United States, um, uh, succeeded by the 90 years of Jim Crow and the 60 years of segregation, and then um, he kind of hones in on the racist housing policies that he has seen historically in America through redlining and other stuff. Because of all these elements in which African-Americans have been systematically excluded from accumulating wealth or kind of breaking into the middle and upper class in America as a result of all that systemic discrimination against African-Americans. He argues that America as a culture, as a society, as a government ought to seriously consider um, offering reparations, specifically economic reparations, in order to kind of move towards kind of helping African-American communities begin to economically rebound. And also, he makes a really strong case for reparations as a tool for grappling with uh, America's past kind of primal sin of racism and the ongoing incarnations of that. And he offers several examples of how this is um, kind of happened a lot. And he mostly falls along with the um, example of Clyde Ross, no, Lyde Ross, who's um, a uh, black man who was born in Clarksdale, uh, Mississippi, um, before moving to Chicago in his 20s and 30s. So he experienced both, you know, overt kind of Jim Crow era racism of the South, but also the more kind of subtle and insidious forms of racism 
of segregation in Chicago. And I just found it really um, arresting because before this article, I was actually never introduced to the idea of reparations. Uh, in a lot of my classes, I've been exposed, of course, to the idea of racism and the ideas of, you know, this is a thing that America perpetuated in the past, but in a way, we're kind of healing from that. And for Coates to kind of boldly claim it as something that's a clear, p- present danger, ever current reality for mm-hmm. the American um, black was really uh, sobering for me. And I found the idea of like demanding kind of economic responsibility from white Americans to be very persuasive in many points. Um, I have a few minor quibbles along the way, and I don't think it gives enough specific kind of instantiations of how this would look. But overall, the clear thrust of the argument, I am incredibly persuaded by, and I think he does a fantastic job of communicating that clearly, deftly, and with a lot of uh, poise and truthfulness, which I find in all his writing. You know, you got at something I think is fundamental in this, and, and part of the reason that I think this article is really well written, is that oftentimes when reparations are discussed, we tend to describe them uniquely as a consequence of the Civil War or, or as, as slavery, as, as the antebellum experience, right? So, um, but what, what, what this author does is really unpack the other stuff that the the um, the consequences of um, of slavery and specifically of Jim Crow and of segregation of redlining of the inability for some communities to build wealth uh, because of um, uh, predatory practices within those communities in terms of lending and those kinds of things. So you can you you can hear a much broader argument than. Um, something happened, um, you know, 150 years ago, and and we want reparations for it 150 years past. One of the, my frustrations is oftentimes this discussion gets boiled down into something that it wasn't intended to be. Right, and I yeah. think he resurrects that that larger argument. And and I do want to note that I'm grateful we're having the conversation now because this article was written four five years ago, but uh, many people have been resurrecting this discussion and on the presidential level, like a lot of Democratic uh, presidential uh, nominees, not nominees, uh, candidates candidates right now who are running, have been asked these questions on a public – so it's a very present, very kind of hot-button issue that we're still grappling with as we're kind of – I'd like that we're trying to refine the debate a little bit at least. Yes, and also a lot of the discussions that you can find – uh, both in media and online, reference this article. Right, so clearly, right. Coach touched a nerve, and sure. I think, I think what you said about being very deftly written, mm-hmm. it is it is quite moving in some points, mm-hmm. and um, it's it is not over emotional, and it's not it doesn't have it's not dripping with pathos to the degree that a person would tire of reading it and and not give the argument full consideration. So let's unpack what you mean by that, dripping with pathos, because I agree, but it's uh, it's more about the facts. Well, not just that, but I teach English, specifically composition, and we talk in class uh, as student writers and I about what it means to have voice in writing. And voice is an auditory quality, so it's weird. Mm-hmm. But But yet, you can pass out articles and say, read this article and let's talk about what voice we hear, and students can nail it. And I think that Coates' voice here is it is not hyper-emotional. It's not screaming, Mm -hmm. in other words. Mm -hmm. It is not condescending. It is not, um, well, it's not patronizing. 
he is attempting to lay out some convincing evidence of his argument and draw the reader along with him. And to, to the degree you end the article on his side or not, or moved at all, it's not because of poor writing. Hmm. That's a great point. Yes. And, and I like especially the movement that he makes between. So Clyde Ross is the kind of focus of his article throughout mm-hmm. the entire time. Uh, but though it has an individual focus, which kind of anchors us, you know, pathos-wise. Yeah, yeah. We, have, we have a narrative. We're following this guy that we're increasingly, like, rooting for. But he also doesn't kind of just linger there, which I think that a lot of these discussions can get bogged down to individual grievances. But he's able to do this really effective move, I think, to expanding it to, like, this isn't just about, like, a few people individually. He makes that movement very... Uh, he kind of fluidly moves back and forth. But I think it was a good move. The individual and the corporate is constantly, you know, that is the core of this kind of debate. And he does that rhetorically, I think, really well. Logan, I wonder what you think about this. I, I've read some people who are on Coates' side who really appreciate his article who feel that he stopped a little short because he seems to, at the end, call for more conversation and stop more than call for some concrete action. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, and that's what I alluded to at the beginning. Um, I think that he does fantastic jobs of kind of point out some key issues that we need to hone in on, but he does kind of stop short of concrete action. And I think that Coach would kind of cop to this. He would say, I'm not a policymaker, I'm a writer, uh, and he's often kind of gotten flack for this. He's not a big fan of activism, and so he often doesn't actually call for concrete political action. Um, And at the end, he does kind of it falls a little flat. I don't think enough. To, I think it is still a remarkable work. But he basically says that, like, this is a chance for America to grapple with and kind of a maturation of America to acknowledge her past sin, which is great. But when it gets down to it, the nitty gritty of a lot of this conversation is going to be like, well, what does reparations uh, point by point mean? Right. I, I think he actually is making a point here that uh, you know uses uh, uh, Johnson's words that Negro poverty is mm-hmm. not the same as white poverty. Right. And I think that's really the, the thesis that runs through this is please don't equate your own experience of w- white folks, please don't equate your own experience of poverty or your own perceptions of poverty with what we see, uh, you know, over the um, historically with, uh, with with the black population. So I think he's probably trying to inform the way we have the discussion, not what the policy is. And a, con- and a constant refrain of his work is racism is an ongoing reality. Don't try to shuffle it back to some, you know, pre-ideal state. It isn't even a pre-1968 reality. It's a current and present reality for America. And so I think yeah, I, I agree with you that he has it to me to do that in, he, that in here. But there comes a point in which I wish there had been a little more specificity with what he was envisioning when we talked about reparations. And I felt that the lack of specificity does come up in his other writings too. Between the World and Me, which I love, does kind of play fast and loose with the idea of like who exactly are you kind of trying to point out when you're talking about dreamers. The American dream is kind of what he's taking a shot mm-hmm. at. But he never super spells out what that means, <laughs> which is actually sometimes good because it, you know – instigates more conversation sure. to fill the emptiness. But, yeah. I like super spells out. I like that. Super spells out. You know, super, super spells, spells out. Super spells out, <laughs> yes. I don't know exactly what that means, but, you know, colloquially no, it makes sense. <laughs> I hear you. All right. Well, let me just throw this out on the table and um, ask Logan to respond. And, Scott, I expect you to follow up. What we try to do in this podcast, Logan, is answer the question, to what degree should Christians – 
become involved with the powers of the state or with the state at, at any level. And so as, as much as I hear you really agreeing with Coates and the points he makes, is there a way that you can tell us how your agreement with him as a citizen differs from your agreement with him as a Christian? In other words, would a citizen who is not a Christian want to act differently from a citizen who is a Christian given these arguments? Uh, that's pretty cool. That's what I, I don't know that we've had do. that kind of conversation so far. So that, that's yeah. pretty cool. Okay. Well, and and when I, I think at this moment, um, the, uh, d- diving in kind of codes who he is, um, I think this is especially pertinent question because Coates himself is decidedly hardcore not a believer. Not that he's like militantly atheist or anything, but um, he has perpetually consistently affirmed his materialism insofar as that like this present bodily reality is all there is. That's what he's talking about between the world and me, his like kind of famous memoir, the one National Book Award. So he is thoroughly – he in fact actually has kind of gotten some flack from Cornell West, um, another famous – you know. Uh, prominent black intellectual for kind of being too cynical in his view. And that flows from his kind of atheism. He'd probably call it agnosticism, but it's just the lack of belief in anything in the hereafter. So the kind of religious energy that propelled the civil rights movement, that propelled uh, people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other black intellectuals of the last 100 years doesn't propel him. Yet, he opens this article with a quote from Deuteronomy, which I absolutely <laughs> right. adore. Um, I don't know if we want to read it in full, but I think it might be worth reading in full. And he locates a lot of his argument in a, an idea of justice that I think is deeply biblical. So I'm going to try to answer this. For myself, um, I come from a tradition that institutionally – doesn't place a lot of faith in institutions. It's a weird kind of tension because I was raised in the Churches of Christ, which has this kind of long history of a non-institutional kind of church while also really vaunting up a specific mode of being church. So for me, religiously, having that in the background, I think that the tension I feel a lot of times as a Christian trying to engage politically is that I simultaneously don't really love institutions, but I also think that institutions are super important. So while I morally and biblically, biblically buy into Coates's argument a lot of times, it is very difficult for me. I'm still very agnostic about how, how might this be implemented in a way that is healthy, moral, and treats everyone rightly. Um, so things I agree with, um, the idea of sin and injustice – can be something deeply um, generational. It is something that is not just isolated to an individual. It is systemic. Um, Sin can be a power. It can be something that is not just isolated to like individual wrongdoings. It can be something corporate. I agree with that. Whether or not we all bear a collective burden for specific grievances and economic Misfortune is something that I think can be a little more up in the air, but I still find myself as a Christian buying into that. When it comes to public policy, I'm not exactly sure. I I still do buy in, I think, to a free market, to the idea that people ought to have rights to certain property. So the idea of kind of being coerced into giving up that property 
does wrinkle me a little bit. But I also think that as Christians, we ought to be open-handed with our possessions, especially our material wealth. So I don't know if that gets at the question, but that is where I'm kind of grappling with as a Christian and a citizen and as a Christian citizen. It's hard, isn't it? It is incredibly hard. Especially whenever you really – I find myself when I really feel passionately about a particular topic and then try to separate my passion over here and over here, it sometimes becomes very difficult. Yeah, and I don't think compartmentalizing necessarily is the answer um, because – I, I, I abide and I support and I really believe in the idea of separating religion from the state, yet we cannot appro- but help but approach our engagement in the public square as who we are and part of who we are is who I am as a Christian. So trying to figure out where and when I should kind of exert or flex that muscle is kind of difficult. Well, that's the very nature of this podcast. Right, though. right. Yeah, so yeah. you're hitting on all cylinders. Right. Yeah, and to what degree do um, you feel compelled to persuade others to participate in a particular policy or particular right. initiative right. or particular outcome? That's also a big part of the challenge. I, I think Cole and I have, at some level, we've decided we're not comfortable coercing others because of our faith. Yeah, I might. I'm interested in coercing you uh, for secular reasons, but yeah, not no, no. not because I'm not because Jesus wants your money. I'm cool. I'm cool with coercing people and 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 taking Cole's money. I'm just not comfortable doing it in the name of Jesus. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> so there is some compartmentalization going on there, but I do think that I do think it's worth worth having a discussion about what is our place in the public square. Then, uh, at what point am I? Um, is it appropriate for me to persuade my neighbors uh, toward a particular policy or to a particular um, uh, end, especially when we're thinking about something like coercion is coercion has been happening, right? When we talk about this, when we talk about the situation of um, blacks in America, both in the terms of slavery and in the, co- in the context of Jim Crow, in the context of redlining, in the context of civil rights, one of the big challenges we're having is coercion has always been going on. It's just that it's been directional. And now the conversation is what about correct coercion in the other direction? And that's where I think we end up having some some challenges is because I'm being asked, I'm, I'm, I'm asking to coerce you about something that your grandfather was responsible for or your great-grandfather was responsible for. And that's a challenge. That's a hard conversation to have. And especially when you add in the idea of what if it's not just your grandfather or even your father, in a sense, are we – that's what I'm grappling with, especially as, – is me as an individual Logan in the 21st century and in some ways am I contributing to an unjust system and trying to figure out how responsible, how much moral weight do I bear and how might we think about fixing that in the present rather than just thinking of it generationally, though the generational element is incredibly important too, I think, because I think it's still an ongoing reality that um, a lot of the systems, they're still in place. Even if they're vestiges, there's still elements of racism that exist that disempower black Americans trying to especially accumulate wealth in certain sure. spheres. Yeah, yeah. So you said something earlier that I want to get Cole's reaction to. Naturally. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. You said that, um, I mean, there's the conversation about whether uh, uh, culpability is shared by a society. Right, right. right? But you made the the argument that sin itself yeah. can be shared mm-hmm. at a uh, at a collective level rather than merely at an individual mm-hmm. level. How do you react to that? I would need to know more of what he means by that. 
That's fair. Um, so we're a little bit more in my wheelhouse now, not talking about economic policy. <laughs> the, the, the ideas of sin or something. The biblical text. Yeah, the biblical Logan text is, is on it. Yeah. He's ready. He is on it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're not good with the economics either, to be perfect. fair. <laughs> well, yeah, right. a little more than me, yeah. Um, what I mean by that is that I re- kind of reject this idea that each person is kind of born, you know, pure as driven snow. I think that there is a tendency in human nature to be bent to be kind of directed in a way that is immoral, wrong, and I would say in this case sinful to use Christian language. Um, And I think that has historically been borne out in this kind of doctrine of original sin. Um, The Church of Christ that I grew up in kind of felt uncomfortable with that and kind of hedged it with weird language about the age of accountability and like certain only, you know, you're fine up until a point in which you're morally culpable for your action. But I think the discussion that the Apostle Paul has in Romans talking about sin as a power, it seems to have agency as a kind of existential reality that pervades systems and not just individuals convicts me to claim that I think that moral culpability in those terms framed as sin can be something that can be experienced by societies. And I think this is born out in the Old Testament, less so in the New Testament, but I think it's still present. So we are individually responsible for our own failures, our own sins, but in a sense – Sin is a corporate reality for which we are all beholden to, which I think leads us into a discussion of that is why as a Christian I argue that we are in need of salvation through Christ. And that salvation is put into play in a corporate reality in the church. So the kind of corporate sin that we are guilty to is redeemed, cleansed continually, an ongoing process in, through the corporate reality of the church, which is comprised of individuals, but it's still a corporate reality, and it stands opposed to the corporate reality of sin. Does that? That's a strong question? ecclesiology. That is a strong ecclesiology. Um, so your question, Scott, is what do I think about that? Yeah, you know, about I, corporate sin. I, I'm imagining that the idea that um, us, a group of people, can be responsible for the sins of the group, even if an individual was innocent, yeah, might be holds no truck with you. me. Right, doesn't hold any truck with me, and I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, I think what you just articulated was really cogent, and I appreciate it. And I've not heard, I haven't talked about this much in my life. So what I am now telling you how I feel about it is a first pass. I, I man, I do so agree that. The church has a corporate existence. The ecclesia has, you know, it is one thing and many things at one time. I think the language that I see about salvation is individualistic. Whosoever, who, whatever person believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, and I think the nuances of judgment that I have read both biblically and in commentaries that talk about you, the the reason that we can't judge each other is because we don't know each other's hearts. So if I'm standing in a crowd where someone is getting stoned, I'm thinking of the woman caught in adultery and all those, some men were throwing rocks, some were just standing there. I don't know why, that's just the first thing that came. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those people 
would not be every one of them judged individually the same. I think God knows there might be a man who walked up who said, what's going on here? What are my brothers doing to this woman? I don't even know what's, what's happening. And there might be some who threw seven rocks. And I think they're all different. So corporate sin doesn't wash very hard with me uh, because of the language of individualism I read regarding salvation and of judgment. So uh, I'm not su- won't be surprising that I disagree a little bit. <laughs> I think you I'm hit, shocked. I think you hit on something uh, when you were referencing Paul's theology. I mean, Paul says creation itself is groaning for the redemption. It's not even just us as people, but that the rocks cry out for Christ's redemption. Yes, right. So there's something global about what happens uh, with with sin now. That's Paul, and you can take Paul or leave Paul, but um, but I do think he sees a uh, a global cosmic consequence uh, to evil, in that it, um, it it broadcasts itself in a much um, in a much more holographic way than um, than the mere individual's culpability. And I think, you know, everybody always goes to to Germany in, in World War II, but I mean, that's a place to go here and look at the severity of evil that happens on such a broad scale and how it, it seems to get within the DNA of humanity. It, clearly, there were some people who did wrong things and there were other people who tried to fight against it, but it's a mess. It's a mess that ends up infecting all of us and and affecting all of us. And it, it has, it's, I think Paul's right, it has cosmic consequences. Yes, and I would say that that is a beautiful metaphor with which to talk about it. And I think if we, came, if we came down to some granularity, it would be Bob's evil and Susan's evil and John's evil and my evil and your evil. When when it, it would have to at some point come down to that, and just as if sure. if, yeah. if Nuremberg would have put the entire right. country right. on trial, that's a great point. They would have found people who walked out, saw the smoke, and smelled the flesh, and did nothing. And there would be Bob who got up and went to work every day and had no idea. And God would know the difference. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think and, that's entirely fair. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think that there is – I think there is a helpful distinction you need to make between the culpability of individuals and societies, especially when it comes to questions of wrongdoing. Because you are right. There clearly needs to be a distinction between Hitler and uh, Himmler and, you know, the actual perpetuators of that. And then there's kind of this step down, you know, all the way down to Bob or – I don't know. <laughs> I don't but I would say, Logan, I'm, I'm actually making the argument all the way down to me living 30 uh, – you know, uh, 60 years on the other side mm-hmm. – I even, I would even own a portion of the responsibility, and I wasn't born. Mm-hmm. Right. I, Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yeah. You don't think that makes any sense? No, but you're basing that on Paul's discussion of of evil in the world. I'm trying to understand your warrant for that. Uh, because I'm a human being, I share in that sin. Okay. It, was, it, it, because humans have sin. Humans have, are fallen. I, well, is it smaller than that, or is it that big? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I actually mean because I exist. Because I exist, I survived. Okay. 
Can I maybe Please. yeah see okay. if you can fix this? Yeah, for yeah. Us. well no no okay so so what what maybe we can go about it from what I would view as a Christian and a slightly less Christian way of it. <laughs> so first, it, it, I, my question to you don't need to answer yet is what do you think the fall did, especially in regards to like the existence of humans when they were born? What is different about the pre-fall reality than it is now? And maybe on a second less Christiany level. The idea that humans are communal animals and we exist in groups, not only as individuals. I want to hold up our responsibility to make decisions and exist as individuals. Yet, in a very real way, a large amount of who we are, the choices we make, have been inflected and influenced and bent or corrected and directed as a result of how we live communally. And if I, as a Christian, argue that this world is still in some way under the dominion of sin and darkness and Satan, what does that mean that I'm born into that? So maybe from a Christian perspective, I would ask you, what do you think is different yeah. between the pre- and post-fall reality for yeah, us? Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think I have a lot to chew on here. So let me let me go for a while, and you can interrupt if you need to. Okay. Um, Logan, I think my answer as an adult to what is meaning having thought about it as an adult, uh, uh, the answer, how are we different from the fall, is that God gave us the ability and wherewithal to reject him. Post-fall. Yes, yes. post-fall. Hmm. We, we, or that's, that is the fall that God made us in his own image, and yet we can say, now that we are made in your image, we reject you, and we will put our will ahead of yours. So we therefore leave, uh, we strike out on our own and choose to not have God in our life and, and to make decisions based upon uh, what benefits me and me only and be selfish and greedy and all the things that, that we're warned against uh, later on in the scriptures. Now, tribal versus individual, you're absolutely right. I think we are inclined to live in community, and we're inclined uh, to listen and be shaped and be persuaded, but in the end, we're choosing to listen to persuasion and make decisions once we're no longer a child. I'm, I'm now talking about adults who make decisions. So um, I can... You mentioned, and this article mentions, I'm going to go right back to the article and talk about what he calls predatory practices. Right now in society, we talk, we, I hear lots and lots of people talking about the payday lenders. Mm -hmm. They are predatory. Right. He mentions the people at the, who would buy a house, sell it for a much higher on contract. Uh, I'm talking about Coates in his article. And that that was predatory. Well, Predatory lending doesn't happen unless the buyer signs the note. Predatory lending does not end people's ability to do math, right? So I agree that it's very high interest and it's very poor contract, and therefore you, I don't think people should buy things under those contracts. I don't, I don't think payday loans are a very good bargain. Some people don't have much ability to borrow in other ways, they still don't have to go to predatory lenders. They can do without, or they can sell something or whatever. But my point is, just because there is a predatory persuader doesn't mean that an adult individual must fall to the persuasion. Okay? Yeah. So in that way, I would say, um, 
yes, communities tend to be persuasive, to act in certain ways for the individuals in that community. I'm still seeing individuals in that community make decisions. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I like the granularity and the specificity of that example, especially as it relates to Coast's argument, because I think it can be easy when we're getting to big, you know, discussions of what we think existentially about how reality works. It can <laughs> We can lose how this actually works in real life. To the predatory loan thing, I agree that ground zero is that indiv- that relationship between the individual, the predatory loaner, and the kind of, however everyone phrase it, the person who receives that loan. Um, you're correct that they don't lose the ability to do math. They don't like aren't don't have a gun being held to their head saying you have to take this out. Yet, what I would try to nuance and what I would say is that when you have a relationship between two individuals like that, it is not just those two individuals who are having that conversation. Um, in the background. In the background, you have a whole host of communal, societal, generational realities coming to bear in that situation. So when someone is being waved alone in their face because of maybe the poor educational system in which they grew up in, because of the economic duress they find themselves in, because they're in a lower socioeconomic bracket, those kind of realities pressure them and in a way kind of make their agency feel less free than we might suppose about that situation. If you are going to bed hungry more often than not, if you really need to make a payment on your rent or else you're going to be evicted, then those are realities that exist outside of that individual relationship that is occurring, that transaction that is occurring there. And I think that in the case of predatory lenders, especially to black communities, black communities have been placed in much more difficult economic positions that rendered those relationships not so much a failure of them to do math or a failure of them as individuals, but rather individual decisions that are made under duress. So even if it is an individual decision, it is one being made in light of a communal corporate system rigged against them. Well, I would say – I would push back a little and say I, whereas I utterly agree that they might feel more pressures on their life, and they might be more in a position that being persuaded to take a bad loan seems more helpful than not. I don't think that it means that they are unable to reject a bad decision. I just think it makes it more difficult. I think you're right that they probably, a lot of uh, these folks in his article that he talks about um, did not have wise counsel and felt the pressures that you're mentioning. And the pressures that you're mentioning, I mean, we can talk about the redlining and uh, all that stuff. I would still say are individuals who are contributing in ways that they chose to contribute. Meaning the people, there are racist people today and there were racist people who worked in banks and there were racist people who worked for the FHA and drew lines. Those were all individuals making decisions to do that. So here's my question. Okay. Um, let's uh, let I know you would love this if you got to live in the late 40s, early 50s. <laughs> but let's put you in the late 40s, early 50s. As a Christian, what is your responsibility to banks that are yeah. making policies like redline policy? I actually wrote this down. And so I want Logan to hear this too. Um, Scott and I have talked before about how 
where we see the church has failed. The civil rights movement in the 1960s, uh, and starting in the 50s and, and the 60s, one of the reasons it came about was because the church did not do enough. Hmm. So if Scott and I had been business owners, me of a lunch counter and him of a bus station or yeah, something like that, uh, it would have been our responsibility as Christians to put huge signs up that say, black people welcome here, Jews welcome here, everyone's welcome here. That's what we should do as Christians. And so had I been a person who worked at a bank uh, or who ran a bank or who had the means to open a bank from scratch, as a Christian, it would have been my responsibility to say, you know what, not participating in what other white racist people in my sphere are doing, I am going to actually assist black Americans in getting homes in every way I can because I feel that that is a, an appropriate response to the pressures that are being applied. So, yeah, I'm, I'm almost at the same exact same spot. The, the, the bifurcation I'd make is there are ways in which I'm interested in persuasion and there are also ways in which I'm interested in coercion. Okay. So I am am interested in a conversation as a Christian to persuade others to open up their lunch counters. But I also believe as a citizen, I have the responsibility to coerce you to open your your lunch counters. So those two things are together, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There are times where I feel like I have the responsibility to persuade, but no responsibility to coerce. And so, and I haven't figured out when I do and when I don't, but um, that would be the difference. I think both of us would feel obligated to persuade. Absolutely. But where we would separate is that I would still feel the responsibility to also ensure that coercion happens and you would be uncomfortable with Well, that. I would be very comfortable with coercion as regards equal protection under the law. Sure, I understand His, that. Coates' yeah. example, I guess people can't see me pointing at the article in here. <laughs> Coates' example of, uh, what's the gentleman's name? Clyde Ross. Clyde Ross. He, Clyde Ross was abused by the government. Right, right. He, and that is high crimes for which government officials should have been swiftly punished. So that kind of coercion, I have zero problem with as a Christian uh, going into the public square loudly and claiming equal protection under the law is is what everyone should be experiencing, not just... That's an excellent okay. point. But I, I, you know, forcing my lunch, forcing a lunch counter to admit black people does not cause white people to like black people. No. It did not eradicate racism. No. And so I wonder how much good it did well, to it, force that to happen because you're allowed in this country to be a racist. It I think is it did do. I think it did do good on a generational scale. Mm. I mean, one of the challenges we have right after the Civil War, you have the whole Reconstruction period, and it wasn't until Johnson, you know, I mean, he's impeached over this. It's this not uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, Andrew, Andrew Johnson. <laughs> thank you. But he, I mean, he's impeached over this because he's uh, he's working against every single action of the of, of the Reconstruction. And there's a major failure of Reconstruction mm-hmm. and and the emergence of Jim Crow, yeah. right? Oh, so, yeah. yeah. So yeah. my point being that uh, the the lunch counter <laughs> revolution and the civil rights movement of the 60s is necessary because we didn't finish the work of Reconstruction uh, generations earlier. But it's had generational outcomes. Things are 
better than they were in the 60s. I wonder because we ref- I'm not saying re- racism is gone, I know. but things are changing. I know, and I, I wonder if it's correlation or causation. I think a lot of people in my camp would say the reason that civil rights happened was because society was ready for it to happen, that that the feelings, the the way that different ethnicities get along now is not because of the civil rights. It was on its way to happening, and the civil rights were just a, a, a co-occurrence. That may be. I don't know if we can ever prove yeah. that one way right, or the other. Right, who knows? You know, knows? I went to a school that required integration at the elementary school level and up. And I don't know to what degree I'm different because of that from people who went to segregated schools. Well, it's the problem with longitudinal data right, right. is that you're talking about lots of variants that factor into the right. way that we think about those longitudinal points and, and, uh, and causal, causal relationships are hard. Well, let me finish the thought, and then I'm going to ask Logan to – because I know you've been just listening to us talk back and forth. Oh, for I, I, it's great. I love uh, it. <laughs> I said a moment ago that in this country, you are allowed to be a racist. And I want to make sure that everyone hears me say, <laughs> I think it is up to Christians and other good people, right. moralists who are maybe not Christians, but moralists, to persuade people that racism is not the way forward for each individual. Sure. And a lot of Coates', Coates article, while Again, being brilliantly written, I think, it kind of pushes together some things that are about equal protection of the law, which get my hackles up, and then things that are about individual choice, which I feel necessary to persuade the other way, but not to coerce people the other way. You know what? I, I just heard something uh, the other day. We, it was a conversation about the, the political setting that we're in, and um, this person made a brilliant point which was that there are politicians and they have culpability for the way things are. And talking about the separation of people and, and how we just are not able to have conversations anymore. And it's not the same as it used to be. Right. right? Um, that politicians are to blame. The media is to blame. But we as an electorate are also to blame. And we have to take on that responsibility. As a voter, I need to also take on my responsibility and decide – uh, to own my agency when I go into the voting booth. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to talk about other systems and what other systems need to do. It is very difficult to have a conversation about um, what individuals what individuals need to choose. My, my concern is I think we assume that everyone operates under s- the same heuristics. And I'm not sure the same heuristics are available for everyone making the same decision. And I feel like that's Coates' argument. As I mentioned earlier uh, uh, earlier on, I feel like that's his ultimate argument, is that you're talking about two different heuristics of poverty and um, a decision-making process that makes sense to you and what I would do in this situation is foreign to the context and the heuristic um, uh, model that exists for someone in that moment, making that decision. The access you have to rationality or to whatever we define as rationality uh, may be different, maybe a different access. The math is different. The heuristics are different. And I think that's his argument. And I think that I get where you're going. I think it's important to note that as a result of equal protection under the law, like you said, Dr. Ben, is incredibly important. And I, I... Totally agree with that. The issue is, and I think Coach does an excellent job of bringing this up, is that because of the way that black and white people have historically experienced the law, their relationship with it and their reaction to and 
involvement in the political, the economic realities of the United States is going to naturally be different. They are individuals, yes, but they are individuals who are born into a certain milieu. So, like, the idea of the of American law being historically prejudiced against black people or people with certain colors of skin is a reality. And even if maybe today we don't have encoded in law that discrimination, this, the fact that we still operate in kind of a country that historically has had that, how how, how can you guarantee that we're beyond that? Like when Columbus landed on Guanahani, you know, 400 plus years ago and began kind of, you know, systemically arguing that these people, he thought they were Indians, uh, aren't to our level. How do we get past that if we don't kind of confront this idea of, okay, historically, the founding fathers had views of not all of them, but a lot of them had views of black people that have inflected our society even if we're not all individually racist, the structures were created with racist impulses. Can I try to answer for you as oh, my inner Cole Bennett? Please. Okay. I think this is where you would go. All right. <laughs> is we have, as a Christian, I have that responsibility at the level of persuasion. You have persuasion of individuals or persuasion of systems? Both. Both. Okay. I have the responsibility to engage the public square if I feel that that is a, uh, a something that as a Christian I, I feel like needs to be reversed. I have every, not just the opportunity, but as a Christian, the responsibility to persuade. So in the case of uh, one, of the, one of the things that happens, and I'm saying this as a, as a socialist, um, one of the things that happens to my libertarian friends is that it oftentimes uh, they're accused of not believing that something is a wrong, believe it's, you might believe something is a wrong, but you don't solve it through coercion. You address it through persuasion. So Cole is one of the most generous people I know. If he sees something happening that is moving to him at an indivi- as, a, as an individual, he may choose to be benevolent toward that cause and actually say to all of his friends, I wish you also would give money to this cause. But that is a different conversation than going to the state and having the state write a law that says we're going to take 15 cents out of everybody's check and go do this thing. Am I getting at your... Well, yes, I think there's a lot. I'm not sure how that's answering his question yet. I thought I did brilliantly. <laughs> well, you you are articulating exactly of the libertarian perspectives. I well, I, I guess what I'm saying then is that uh, you know if you think about something like the systemic consequences of colonialism, that it would not be uh, out of bounds for a libertarian to say, "I see these, these consequences of colonialism, and I think that they are real and extant." But I would stop shy of coercing everyone to a particular policy. Uh, in light of colonialism, and instead, I would try to engage. Um, I would try to engage in activity that is uh, reparative, and I might even be willing to persuade others to engage in that activity can that I, is reparative. Can I nuance that sure. a little bit too? Kind of what I wanted to sure. punt over to the, the libertarian voice floating around in the middle of us. <laughs> uh, you said that the government treated Clyde Ross 
badly. They yes. abused him. Um, they were actors of the, the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, out, yeah. So that, see, I think that's where the nuance for yeah. me comes in. I don't necessarily see actors of the government that were racist. I do not think it was individuals. I think collectively, corporately, systemically, the United States government and power structures were arranged from the get-go in a way that privileged whites. Do you necessarily buy that? And I know that 1776 is different from 2019, but do you just see the government as a collection of individuals or can't can, – because I see it as its own independent corporate reality comprised of individuals but yet still something separate and apart from individuals. Libertarians have a saying. Okay. There's no such thing as the state. There's only people who get voted in. So there's no such thing as the government. There's only politicians who get voted in, like that guy and that woman and that guy and that woman right there. So to say the government did something, the government can't do anything. That guy can write a law, and these people can vote for it, and she can introduce legislation, and then these people can vote for it. That's how policy gets made. And what Scott said a moment ago, in 1776, when this country started and said, this is how we are going to be free— and yet there were slaves in the society, the Society of Friends, mm-hmm. the Quakers, immediately said, everyone hold it. Mm-hmm. You cannot have a country where you're chirping about freedom and having slavery. They don't go together. And they said it until slavery was made right. illegal. Right. And so they felt – now, these are the Friends. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are Quakers, right? Right. So they were getting involved with the state to say – this is this equal protection of the law that we all want. You are now denying to these folks over here, and they were. And, and so, to me, it is an appropriate way. Uh, it is an appropriate engagement of the state to say, as a as a as a Christian citizen, mm-hmm. to say, I am standing up to members of the state and saying you are not treating these people correctly, which is different from saying a lot of things we're saying now, which is I want this charity to receive tax funds because I want because I like it or I want this law um, I want to coerce people to do this because I think it's a good idea but it has nothing to do with equal protection so Logan I do think that the Jim Crow laws necessarily um, necessarily hurt black Americans and I think it no one likes this argument but I think you have to look at where we were as a people move back when certain things were made, uh, back when laws were made. That's not to justify Jim Crow, but when people talk about slavery, the whole world had slaves for centuries, and Western white men in power were the ones who stood up and said, this has to stop, and let's make <coughs> legislation to stop it. That doesn't mean that slavery was ever okay, but I'm, I'm talking about this today, not talking about it in the 18th, 17th and 18th century when it was extremely common all over the West to have slaves. So that's, that is a very hard argument to win is what were the parameters back then? What were the social mores back then? That's, nobody wants to have that argument, and I think it's difficult too. Um, and I think it's interesting to identify the Christian impulse if we're talking about Christians in the public square. You're, you kind of place the onus on – Christian persuasion um, from non-state actors is kind of what maybe helped propel uh, the end of slavery. Well, some of them were state actors. 
somewhere so, in somewhere. Exactly. So that's why it's interesting bringing bring up the Quakers, who are pretty non-institutional I know. people. Because to me, I thought that the prime a war ended slavery, in a sense, and that was an action of a state. How do you kind of grapple with the fact that Abe Lincoln, the statiest of the state people, <laughs> was able to? in slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation as a state proclamation. The Quakers have been talking about it, you were right, for 100, 100 years. Well, and let's that. make it clear that Abraham Lincoln was not – he had, he famously said, I, if I could keep the union without freeing the slaves, yes, I would yeah, do it, I, right? Yeah. So this is uh, – I mean, He's not a saying. I want South to Carolina that, yeah. made it about slavery. Yeah, and Mississippi, I think, was like, yeah. we, this is about slavery. <laughs> yeah, right, and our dear state, Texas. <laughs> so someone had to get in front of policymakers – and do the bargaining to say, this is what we as a people want. We want this to stop. Wilberforce has done it in England. It is, we need to do this too because this is wrong. And there were lots of people, I'm sure, as you read, who were wanting slavery to continue, but enough people with enough representation got laws passed that took it off the books. And then, as you know, with Jim Crow and segregation, just because the law was on the books doesn't mean that people followed it. But eventually they did because the law came into effect more slowly than we would have liked. M- certainly slowly enough that many people suffered because of its slowness in coming about. But I'm not ready to say that we are all responsible for how slowly the death of slavery came about and that we're all culpable. I'm not ready to say that as a libertarian or a Christian. But so even the argument that you made um, that nobody wants to hear it, but that was at a time and there were different mores at the time, you're not willing to say that at that time there was sin in the culture, that there was culp- there was a cultural culp- culpability. No. Okay. Uh, but no, but, and one of my examples... Because they were innocent? Because of, some of my examples are the Quakers who said, this is wrong. They didn't say, well, we're part of a society, so let's get behind slavery. They oh. were individuals who said, no, no, okay, no, I, no, I hear no. this. Okay, okay, I can hear this. It takes me a minute, but I can. it's coming into focus. I hear where you're coming from. So the fact that Wilberforce stands up or the fact that the Quakers stand up, uh, the fact that Jim Brown stands up, means that there was an option to stand up against this evil, even if Joe Sixpack thinks that slavery is just fine because he never heard any different. Right. Got it. But who is the ultimate arbiter between those conversations? So you have the Quakers as a collection of individuals on one hand, but then you have a collection of racists. And maybe even you have uh, the Presbyterian Church was split over the issue of slavery. At what point is it just how many extra individuals – the ultimate arbiter of which action is implemented on a state level isn't individuals, is it, in your mind? You have to have people who suggest legislation, who write legislation, and who vote for legislation. Yes. And that happens individually. Yes. It is not wrong to talk about it happening collectively at a, at a metaphorical level. Mm-hmm. If you said Texas passed this law, well, yeah. But that's because someone persuaded legislation, someone wrote it, it went to all the committees, it came out and people voted. But what propels people to make those decisions as individuals? To me, there seems to be an existence behind the individual 
your community, your sure, generational your pers- loyalties, persuasion your, that you can either agree to or not. But how? But but how, but I still want to punt it a little behind that. How do you make that decision? What propels you to make that decision to agree or disagree? Your Even individual when, moral compass. But how is that developed? How is that shaped and formed? Well, I think I know right where you're going with this is to say that it is not possible for some people to make the right decision, and I will never go there. Okay, yeah, I I, I don't want to – I'm not a determinist. I think that's a bridge too far. I'm not not a determinist. I do not think that that is a healthy way to look at the human. I I think humans should be approached as free agents, and that gives everyone dignity that they ought to receive. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, there needs to be a balance that I think the libertarian case overstates our capacity for freedom from – Corporate cultural communal realities. Because you didn't come up with your worldview yes, in isolation. Yes. I hear that a lot. You didn't choose. Yeah, yeah, you didn't right. choose your worldview. It was, it was constructive. It was from a constructivist point of view. It's a collaboration of yeah. social agreements. I hear that a lot, and like, <laughs> it, I do. When when people disagree with me, that's what I hear. I know. That, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. people are unable to overcome their environment. <laughs> well, it's, I, it's no, same, I don't think we're unable. Same, to, it's yeah. the same argument, though. That you're, some people have a moral compass or a worldview that was created by this way, and that that can somehow never be penetrated to an individual, totally free decision maker. And I just I've seen too many I've seen too much evidence that that's not true. I've you know I've seen it's not just anecdotal. I've seen too much evidence that people overcome the worldviews that were built when they were. Growing up, or yeah. whatever, I, I I hate to in, inject a bit of poetry into this discussion. <laughs> I, I'm, poetry always we deserves like injection. But I was listening this morning to um, to Sufjan Stevens. And Love Sufjan Stevens, and that uh, that song about John Wayne Gacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he tells the story in a few short verses. He tells the story of John Wayne Gacy, and then at the end, he says, "And in my best behavior, I'm really just like him." Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. Hmm. And what's so powerful about this line is that he's done a fine job up until that point of painting John Wayne Gacy as the creep that he is, right? As the freak that he is. And yet um, he shares in this kind of global culpability by being a human being. He shares in... There's a lot of there's a lot of mess going on for John Wayne Gacy, but it is holographic. In other words, it exists in it in its full form in all of us. And until we are able to accept that and reflect on it, there's really no way for us uh, uh, to deal with uh, the. Um, there's really no way for us to ultimately deal with the consequences, and. This is this. I, I, I bring this up to come back to the point of our conversation, which is: should we require reparations? My only concern with requiring reparations is that my fear would be that it would be transactional, that it would be an event that we believe that once we did that event, everything should be square. Because I feel like that happened with uh, the Voting Rights Act. I feel like that happened with affirmative action. I feel like over and over again, we've, we've initiated some policy, and then there is a body of people who say, well, we did that, and nothing changed, so why should we do anything else? And then we got to a point of reparations that we'd mail out checks, and then the conversation on the other side would be, well, we did that, so what's the problem? Like the Indian reservation situation. Well, my um, 
when my sister was in seventh grade, when my youngest sister was in seventh grade, I would tell her uh, every day, shut up, you're just a seven. You know, we wouldn't want to listen to it. That's how I deal with her whenever she talked out loud. And um, she would say many times, I can't wait till I get in eighth grade. You know where this is going. She didn't know where it was going. I can't wait till I get in eighth grade. And then she turned into, the day she finished seventh grade, she says, I'm so glad that's over because you can never say, I'm just a dumb savvy anymore. And I said, well, what do you know? You're just a dumb 80. (laughs) I never even heard that term before. But oh, the surprise on her face was was precious. Um, um, That's abusive. But my, my point is, I think we can sometimes look at what's in front of us and think we could solve this or we could address this issue with a transaction. And that scares me to death because, you know, you you look backwards, it just seems like we keep trying to do these transactionally and we're not dealing with the holographic sin that Mm -hmm. I think maybe I need to pay a little bit. And so does my son, and so does my grandson, and so does my great-grandson need to pay a little bit for this collective sin. So I'm, uh, that's, where I'm, that's where I am with this conversation of yeah. reparations because I fear that it becomes a kind of transaction that we're supposed to be able to wash our hands of. That's fair. Can I read? Uh, yeah. I think that Coates gets exactly where you're at really well by saying, ultimately, this is near the end, it's the third last paragraph, um, perhaps no number can fully capture the multi-century plunder of black people in America. Perhaps the number is so large it can't be imagined, let alone calculated and dispensed. But I believe that wrestling publicly with these questions matters as much as, if not more than, the specific answers that might be produced. Uh, skipping down, more important than any single check cut to any African-American, the payment of reparations would represent America's maturation out of the childhood myth of its innocence into a wisdom worthy of its founders. So this is – you said wave your flag proudly. The, I think this is where the main difference between me and you, Dr. Bend, is uh, I view my existence – as more communal than individual, and I view my responsibility and my maybe moral status and agency as more communal than individual. And that's why I am more in favor of reparations than I am not, because I think reparation pays homage to this idea that the existence of our country right now is not necessarily just a result of individuals, but is shaped by cultural, communal historical realities. And I think that's something that should be highlighted in our public discourse, and I think that's something that should be reflected in our public policy. So that's where I stand on that. Well, I knew we weren't going to solve the issue of reparations. I am thrilled to have this conversation out. And our guest today has been Logan Owens. And we are very glad that you stopped by to talk with us about this article and this topic. And we wish you the best at Mizzou in their master's program. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it.